When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 287, and we're recording on June 22nd. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we're coming to you from Book Riot. Welcome to the show. Jazz hands. <laughs> hello, hello. I say the jazz hands because you cannot see the jazz hands. Correct. Correct. <laughs> so I'm gonna. I'm just gonna get right into like the AMA and all of the. We have many notes. Oh yeah, many we have so many notes. And many notes. Okay, so um, first of all, how the show works, I'll do that first. This is a show for reading recommendations, obviously, <laughs> as I as I just said 30 seconds ago. So you can email us your reading recommendation requests at getbooked.bookriot.com, or you can drop them in the form in the show notes on the site. Either is fine. I check both of them. So, you know, if you have a time sensitive question, please put that in the subject line of your email. Or if you're using the form, just put it in big, bold letters, all caps in the first line. So we will see it. We will email you back if we're not going to get to it on time or if we have already answered your question on the show. So, you know, we're in episode 287, episode 300 approacheth. What? The end is nigh. No, it's not the end. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's just episode 300 is nigh, but that doesn't sound as cool. <laughs> <laughs> So we were thinking for our 300th, which is hard to say, episode, we would do an Ask Us Anything, an A-M-A, but an A-U-A, which is not as fun to say, I guess. Mm. So if you, you know, that's not for several weeks, 13 to be exact. So we'll get to episode 300, I think, in like August. But we're going to go ahead and put out the call for questions now to give people time to send them into us. So if you have, you know, ask us anything. If you want to ask us about books, our own reading lives, or I don't know, the shoes we like. I don't even know. Whatever you want. Amanda's burpee routine. (laughs) I hate a burpee. (laughs) She hates a burpee. Um, Yeah, send us us your questions and we will answer them. We will compile them all together and answer them uh, for episode 300. And you can email those to us at getbookedatbookriot.com. Okay, we've got three items of feedback here. The first is from Jan, who says, For Sue, who wanted books about Turkey, I recommend a graphic memoir, Dare to Disappoint, Growing Up in Turkey by Ozge Samanchi. The memoir tells about growing up in Izmir, Turkey in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s, and how hard it is to live up to parental and societal expectations. It's also funny. I learned a lot about Turkish politics of the time. He's now a professor at Northwestern. Okay, and Sybil says, I have a couple of ideas for Sue who wants to learn more about Turkey. Uh, Notes on a foreign country and American abroad in a post-American world by Susie Hansen. She was based in Istanbul for the Times, I believe, for several years and traveled a lot in the country in the larger region. Her take is really thoughtful and she seems to be very perceptive about the Turkish culture she lived in. And then Anne, who is recommending a book for a different Anne, who is looking for non-angsty detective mysteries. Anthony Horowitz has two series in progress that may scratch that itch. The Susan Ryland series, the first book is The Magpie Murders, and the Hawthorne and Horowitz mysteries, the first book is The Word is Murder. Each series is a sort of meta-homage to Agatha Christie. The author also has a series of Sherlock Holmes retellings, Horowitz's Holmes, beginning with The House of Silk. Though those are still languishing on my TBR, (laughs) says Anne. 
All right. I'm going to read our first question, and we will hear from our first sponsor, and away we will go. Our first question is an Insiders Fast Track request. So you have heard about Insiders from our advertising here on the show. If you, One of the perks, if you sign up for uh, Insiders, is that your Get Booked questions get bumped to the top of the line. So this one is from Klista, who says, My niece is 23 and just informed my sister, brother-in-law, and the family that she is transgender. So she is not my niece. She is starting the process of taking hormones. My sister was shocked and did not see it coming. She's very liberal and coming around to the idea. I was hoping for book recommendations that would help us, especially my sister, understand what my niece has felt like being in the wrong body. In a quick search, I found books involving young kids, but I was hoping for books centered more on coming out as trans as a 20-something and thinking maybe a biography or nonfiction. As a whole, my family loves fantasy, so if there's a book in that genre, maybe we could read it together. Okay, sponsor one. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year year for 2023 so suffice to say y'all should check this new one out thanks again to thirsty by jazz hammonds for sponsoring this episode all right jen i've been talking forever you go first <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of housekeeping to get there to was, was there's no, there's no doubt yeah so i i'm gonna shout out sorted by jackson bird s-o-r-t-e-d which i have to spell it every time because i feel like i say it in a way that is confusing <laughs> that is a great memoir about coming out as transmasculine in his 20s. But I talk about it all the time on the show. So I wanted to find something out. But like that is the shout out for Jackson Bird's memoir. Super good on all of this stuff. And he's doing a lot of heavy lifting in terms of educating people who like don't know the words or like don't have a framework for understanding this. So it's it's a must read, I think. 
But then I wanted to give you a novel. It is Bright Lines by Thani Nandini Islam. And this book is not like about being trans. That's not what this book is. But it has a character who is coming out as trans in their 20s. And it is also just like a really amazing book about coming of age and family dynamics and trying to figure out like who you are, all of which are extremely relevant to all of us, as well as to those who are transitioning. So I thought it might be a good like group read. The main character, Ella, is struggling to sort of fit in with people. She's living, she moved from Bangladesh to Brooklyn to live with relatives because uh, her parents were murdered when she was a child. And then like one summer, Ella is home from college. She's like trying to figure out what she's going to do. She's, you know, dealing with her, you know, cousin and all of that stuff. And then one day her cousin's friend, who is the runaway daughter of a local Islamic cleric, is like asleep in her bedroom that she has been away from because she was at college. But now she's back. Whoops. Um, And so they all are like trying to figure out how to, you know, do the thing. Like, how do you deal with parents who are very strict? How do you deal with not having parents? Also, the parents in this book are like going through some stuff and it's like a whole experience. I just I love a family dynamics novel personally, especially when it's centered around the age group that this one is like that late teens, early 20s, like sorting out your business. Uh, And it's just it's just so well done. It's also got a lot of food for thought about what it's like to be, you know, an immigrant family, et cetera, et cetera. So just like tons of good stuff in here. And the author is an amazing writer. So lots of good stuff. So again, that's Bright Lines by Thani Nandini Islam. All right. I picked Fairest, a memoir by Meredith Talusan, which comes with trigger warnings for racism. Meredith was assigned male at birth in the Philippines. She was born in the Philippines, and she was born albino. And so in Filipino culture, there is a bit of a, I don't know, like obsession is probably too strong, but there's an emphasis on fair skin being fair skinned. Um, And so an albino person would be both like really, really revered and also really, really weird out a lot of people, you know? So she had that kind of double experience of being the center of attention all the time, not really knowing what to do with that. But then she translated it into becoming a child actress. So she was on TV and got like a little bit famous enough to where like her mother started getting jealous of her. It had a very complicated relationship with her parents. Uh, And then she moved to the US when she was, I think, 14 and realized that what's considered like an albino person in the Philippines is just white passing here. And so she figured out that she could pass for white if she could, like, fix her accent. You know, I'm using air quotes around fix. And, like, kind of hide her background a little bit and not tell people where she was from. And then she realized that that's hard, but also pretty worth it in America, weirdly, to be white passing. And so that's an experience that she has all through high school. And then she gets accepted to Harvard, goes to Harvard, and lives as a gay man at Harvard for many years. And there's a lot of discussion. It's very art-heavy, like art criticism heavy, because that was her major for a long time at Harvard. Um, A lot of performance art, a lot of photography and things like that. And then... Meredith transitions in her late 20s, I want to say mid 20s, late 20s after college. And so it follows her from, you know, her childhood in the Philippines to being at Harvard, living as a gay man who is white sometimes. So it's complicated. And then her transition, which 
she does while she's in a relationship with a man. And that is also very complicated because his feelings about her transition influence her decision making a lot. Um, and in a, like a very, I don't know, uncomfortable but honest way. Like, I was surprised that she was admitting that the feelings of her partner mattered in this kind of decision. I don't think that's a universal experience. But also, what do I know? This is like very much so not my lane. Um, so I think that I picked this one because it's super uncomfortable in a lot of ways. Meredith is a very honest memoirist and is not concerned with like portraying herself at, in any kind of angelic or perfect or like spokesperson kind of way. Like she is not a spokesperson for the trans community in this memoir. She is just talking about herself and her own experience. And I think that's really important, especially when you're trying to like understand an, another individual in your own life like realizing that this is their experience you should probably talk to them about it you know like you can read and educate yourself and all of that but not every book that you read is going to speak necessarily mm. for your niece which i think is you know useful to remember so that's fairest by meredith Tellison. such a good point amanda such a good point all right let's see so our next question is from marisa who says, I'm looking for recommendations to read aloud to my seven-and-a-half-year-old boy-slash-girl twins that I will enjoy, too. We love well-written, funny middle-grade books, preferably with animal characters. They are still sensitive readers. We avoid books with any violence and try to avoid orphaned children or those with not great parents. We're not scared of long books or intricate language. Books we've loved and read over and over include The True Blue Scouts of Sugarman Swamp, The Very, Very Far North and its sequel, Winnie the Pooh Collected Stories, books we liked a lot, Flora and Ulysses, Ruby Lou, Brave and True, Gooseberry Park. Uh, And then there's some books that did not make the grade. (laughs) So they're still too nervous to start Harry Potter. All right. So I will keep going. I picked for y'all Where the Mountain Meets the Moon by Gracelyn, which is a Newbery Honor book. So like, I'm not the only one. It's good. (laughs) I'm just saying. Um, And this is the story of a girl named Minley who lives in a hut with her parents and her father at night tells her all of these folk tales about the jade dragon and the old man and the moon. And so Minley decides to go and find the old man and the moon to see if she can like change her family's fortune. And there's a dragon companion. So like animal characters, you wanted animal characters. Here you go. It's a dragon. And it's just like a beautiful, wonderful book. It's about adventure and friendship. And it's got some fantasy, some Chinese folklore. There's really gorgeous illustrations like it's great. Not too scary, like high stakes, but not violence, that kind of thing. Um, and I think it is, I think it might really fit the bill for for your family. So again, that's Where the Mountain Meets the Moon by Grace Lynn. I picked The One and Only Ivan by Catherine Applegate, which I think has big Winnie the Pooh vibes. At least, well, it has, <laughs> when I, <laughs> show title. <laughs> it definitely has E.B. White energy, you know, that like this is a story told from the perspective of animals that is a little bit heartbreaking, but in just a beautiful childlike kind of way and not in a way that's going to scare a particularly sensitive child. So this is from the perspective of Ivan, who is a gorilla. He lives in a mall, (laughs) the Exit 8 Big Top Mall, uh, which also has a video arcade. And he has lived there for quite a long time. Um, He's on, you know, an exhibit in the mall along with an aging elephant who was retired from I think the circus because of an injury and a dog they all talk to each other again very Charlotte's webby and Ivan is like pretty chill he's content with his life he makes paintings that the owner of the mall sells and he watches people just as much as they watch 
him. He spends a lot of time trying to analyze humans and like figure out what makes them tick. And he doesn't really have any memory of his life before being at the mall, but his elephant friend does. His elephant friend, of course, has a very long memory, as the cliche goes, and is quite elderly. And so she remembers life before this particular kind of confinement and tries to talk to him about it. And he's like, I don't know, like, this is pretty fine. Like, I'm fine. I make paintings. I have food. I watch TV. It's fine. You know, and then the dog is like a like like the little rat Templeton from uh, Charlotte's Web. He's like the, the sassy kind of sidekick. And then Ruby, a baby elephant who was taken from her family, gets put into their exhibit and Ruby hates it. Like Ruby remembers freedom. Ruby remembers her family. And she comes in and is like a bomb to Ivan's contentment, right? And starts changing kind of the course of his life and the things that he considers good enough or satisfying enough. And so it is a lot about, you know, like circumstances and accepting your circumstances or not accepting them when they're not actually, you know, serving you. Um, Lots of like little overarching general life lessons that I think kids can really easily pick up on, but told in that that way that, again, like that E.B. White does and that Winnie the Pooh does that's so like genius where if a rabbit is saying it, it sounds so much more profound because it's an outside perspective on the goofiness of people. So like this gorilla sitting in his cage talking about how goofy people are. You're like, man, you're just right. You're just. (laughs) If I had read a children's book about a precocious nine-year-old named Scout saying this to me, I'd have been like, you're annoying. Sit down. (laughs) But this child, but this gorilla (laughs) who makes paintings and is like people, am I right? I'm like, you're just right. You're just right. So I think everybody of all, you know, people of all ages in your family will enjoy this. So that's The One and Only Ivan by Catherine Applegate. Okay, question three is from Emily, who says, I'm finally coming back to get booked now that I can read again. The baby girl took all my free time. (laughs) Relatable. In the last couple of months, I realized that I love atmospheric books, even if the plot is weak or non-existent. Some other books I loved are Aaron Morgenstern books, both of them, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue and Piranesi. Do you have any other recommendations like it? If it's mixed with Greek mythology, even better. All right, Jen, what you got? So mine is not mixed with Greek mythology, but it is possibly the most atmospheric book I've ever read. There is like a plot, but it doesn't make a ton of sense. And that's not the point. So it's Travel Light by Naomi Mitchison. And it starts off with a baby girl who, for like fairy tale reasons, her stepmother wants to get rid of her. She's born to this king. Now she's, you know, going to get put out into the wilderness because that's how her stepmother is getting rid of her in this case. And her nurse goes with her and her nurse turns into a bear because that's what happens <laughs> sure. and takes care of the baby and like raises the baby. And the, the girl doesn't know she's not a bear for like a really long time. And then she meets some people and goes on some adventures. And at some point she ends up in Constantinople and it's like a whole thing. It's a really sort of dream logic kind of book like you're just like okay sure that happened like I don't know why it doesn't matter there's no reason why it had to happen that way or didn't happen that way but this is what's happening and it is so well done like I when I read this book I was just like oh I'm so soothed like Mm -hmm. this is the most soothing reading experience because It sort of doesn't matter why anything is happening and you're just immersed in this world where like nurses turn into bears and it's fine. Like who cares? And, you know, people go on adventures and like sometimes things work out and sometimes they don't. But then you go on another adventure and it's just very extremely like will pull you into its like gentle fairy tale flow and you can float along on the river of this book until you're done. And then you'll come out and you'll be like, ah, oh, that was restful. Like, that's the feeling I had reading this book, which is what it sounds like you are interested in. So again, that's Travel Light by Naomi Mitchison. 
I picked Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller, which is the superior Madeline Miller fight me. I will Ooh. You about it. it is so much better than Circe. <laughs> it's so much better. I like Circe. Fine. But Ooh. the Song of Achilles is better. <laughs> Fighting words. <laughs> there, somebody out there has to agree with me about this. Like, the Song of Achilles is what made her famous. I withhold my opinion. I withhold okay. my opinion. Okay. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. So, obviously, this is about Achilles, <laughs> if you hadn't guessed. It's such a well-known book, I don't even know if I need to explain it. But, you know, it, it does have the Greek mythology thing happening. It's from the POV of Patroclus, who in the Iliad is Achilles, uh, what, there's a, like a like companion, a assistant, combo kind of deal, best friend, BFF forever. Um, and in the Song of Achilles, it is about their relationship. So it's Patroclus is very awkward and he's like been exiled to King Peleus's court where he meets Achilles, who is Peleus's son. And they are raised together in various and sundry fighting techniques. And Achilles is the son of this king, and his mother is a sea goddess, who Thetis, who's a yeah, a sea goddess. So Achilles is a bit immortal himself, and is like supernaturally cute and good at stuff, which for a young Patrick Patroclus is like, oh, this is interesting. So the relationship goes from friends to BFFs to like brothers to lovers to just the whole thing all wrapped up in one. And then they get sent off to war to Troy to fight, you know, because Helen is taken taken from Sparta, et cetera, et cetera. You know what that war is about. So they go off to Troy and they fight in this war. And I don't know, I don't want to, can you spoil the Iliad? Like, is that possible to spoil like the oldest... <laughs> Some people yeah. haven't read it. I mean, That's, you're just right. You're right. So I'm not gonna. Okay. Anyway, you're you are with the two of them as they have this experience fighting in this war, and you are with mostly in Pat Patroclus's head, watching him watch this man that he loves, who is supernatural and is so good at things, and is also like an emotional infant and who always gets what he wants, fight in this war and be like worshipped by all these people and. I picked it because it's not like the plot is not non-existent, right? It's a, it's about a war, obviously. Like it's it's pretty action-packed. But it is the atmosphere is this dude's brain and heart. So like it is stifling in that way. In the same kind of way that I thought Pyrenees Sea was pretty stifling because even though that character is in a huge house that is never ending, he can't leave. You know, he like never leaves. He lives mostly in one room. It's just very suffocating. And I think that the Song of Achilles has that as well. It's got some of that supernatural stuff that Pyrenees Sea has like gods and goddesses just come in and out uh and you don't leave this man's love <laughs> like that is the whole atmosphere of the book everything is colored by how much he loves achilles every choice he makes and it does have this kind of grand atmosphere as well because you are in such a mythologically famous setting like this be the beach of troy is probably the most like literary location ever you know it's the location of the, the our one of our oldest western tales and it's been retold a bajillion times so it has um that like grandiosity i guess is what i'm going for uh, atmosphere as well so that's the song of achilles by madeline miller grandiosity is not a word is it yeah it is i think it is it sounded right to me. I don't know. <laughs> We're just over here making up words. All right. Our next question is from Tracy, who says, I'd love recommendations for books set in or about Bogota, Colombia, preferably something like Chanel Clayton's books about Cuba that help to understand the history and current impacts or nonfiction about the history, any genre is fine. All right, I'm going to keep talking. I read for this question and ended up loving, so thank you for mm. sending it in, Fruit of the Drunken Tree by Ingrid Rojas Contreras. 
And I'm going to start with some content warnings because this book goes some dark places because some really dark things have happened in Bogota's recent history. So there are warnings for rape and other violence towards women, harm to children, including death, and then a depiction of panic attacks and PTSD. This book is so interesting. It, it is in, based in part on the author's childhood experiences, but it is fiction. And it is about the Santiago family who live in a gated community in Bogota. They're like not the richest people in the community, but they're very well off. And our narrator is Chula, who is seven. So it's a grown-up book with a kid narrator, which is a trick that when people pull it off, I think works really, really well, because you as a grown-up grown up have some context and knowledge for things that the kid is telling you about that they don't have. But you're also getting like what that looks like to a kid. So like Pablo Escobar is a huge figure in Chula's life, you know, and he's a drug lord and she like doesn't 100% understand but all she knows is everybody is always talking about Pablo Escobar. And like, it's that kind of stuff where you are getting a look into the concerns of the community from this perspective. And it's incredibly effective. There's also another, it's a two perspective story. The other perspective is Patrona, who is from like, a you know, the Invasion, which I think is like, in my head, it's comparable to the favelas of Rio de Janeiro. It's like a very ramshackle community. You know, it's it's a slum, I guess is the word. And she gets hired on as a maid for the Santiago's. And obviously their experience is extremely different from hers. She is the only employed person in her family. She's watching her little siblings like get into drugs or, you know, get killed by the drug runners or whatever it is. Like there's a lot of really tough stuff that happens for her family. And there are various plot points that I'm not going to dig into at the moment. But it's just, oh, it's really, it's really, really good. And it you get a lot of context and information about what was going on with, you know, the kidnappings, with the political struggle, with the assassinations and the bombings and like all of these things that were happening in Bogota and Colombia and in the 1990s. And so I think it's it's very much like a window into this experience, which is what it sounds like you're looking for. Uh, so again, that's Fruit of the Drunken Tree by Ingrid Rojas Contreras. All right. I picked The Sound of Things Falling by Juan Gabriel Vasquez, and it's translated by Anne McLean. This is, Juan Gabriel Vasquez is a pretty well-known Colombian author. Like, he's he's probably one of the most famous current living, current living, (laughs) that's redundant, living authors hailing from Colombia. So this is about a man named Antonio who um, is living like kind of present modern day. He's, I think, 40. And he picks up a newspaper, he lives in Bogota, and he reads an article about a hippo that has escaped, like a hippopotamus, that has escaped from a zoo that's crumbling and falling apart and is now derelict that was once owned by Pablo Escobar, who is, of course, a drug kingpin from Colombia. And so in reading this, he kind of, the main character, Antonio, kind of flashes back to when he was a younger man during the 70s and 80s and 90s, when Escobar's cartel was having a lot of like very violent conflict in the streets of Bogota with the government um, at the time. And so Antonio, when he was a younger man, again, he befriends a pilot, like his best friend is a man who's like, comes from a family of pilots. And his friend is murdered in a motorcycle drive by shooting that left Antonio himself also quite injured. And so, you know, that was years ago. And he's reading this kind of silly sounding article about this hippopotamus. 
And he starts thinking about his friend and becomes all kind of obsessed almost with figuring out why? Like, what sort of senselessness caused his friend to be shot in that way? Like, how did he get there? And in investigating what happened to his friend and him, you get all of that backstory of Bogota during that time period, during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and how it became the violent place that it became during that time frame, and like, what is kind of being done about it. And it's all told through this man's perspective or through this man's story you get the history of an entire city and country through like what happened to this one guy and his friends he does end up after he gets shot with some with ptsd and agoraphobia it impacts his relationship with his wife and his newborn daughter Uh, there's also a whole portion of this book that's about the american peace corps and what they their involvement in all Mm. of the history of bogota which is like was brand new information to quote phoebe from friends like that it was all brand new information to me I mean, I don't know anything about the Peace Corps, but I certainly didn't know anything about the Peace Corps' involvement in Colombia. So uh, it's one of those, you know, gateway sort of novels where, like, you are reading the story about this one man and the effects of what seems like a random act of senseless violence on his life, but it's actually a gateway into the history of this entire region. So that's The Sound of Things Falling by Juan Gabriel Vasquez, translated by Anne McLean. And it is time for our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. 
All right. Question five is from Lauren, who says, two of my favorite books slash series I read this year have been A Deadly Education by Naomi Novik and The Murderbot Diaries by Martha Wells. On the surface, they might seem different, but they both have such a great narrative voice with the right amount of sarcasm, snark, and humor, and a completely lovable main character, and they left me feeling warm and fuzzy inside. Also, my favorite genres are fantasy and sci-fi, so these were perfect. I'm so sad to have to wait until more comes out from these authors. Please tell me what I can read while I'm waiting. All right, Jen, what you got? Well... When I think about those two books, what I notice is that you refer to two, like, relatively prickly characters as completely lovable. So I feel extremely good about my pick, which is Chilling Effect by Valerie Valdez. It's mm-hmm. the first in this <laughs> Chilling Effect series that we've talked about before, but we have not used it up yet for this year. So here I am. It is sci-fi. It is a very rompy space opera about a crew of, like, the space, like, indie FedEx kind of like they do deliveries they they take cargo from one place to the other maybe they're more like truck drivers I don't know the point is that they deliver things in space and they are not particularly well off like they're scrappy they're just kind of getting by and the captain Eva Innocente is part of this bigger family where she's like kind of estranged from her family you know that something very dramatic happened in her past that's part of it and her father's like not a good dude and she there's some complicated feelings there and so she hasn't really been that much in touch with her family but she finds out that her sister Mari has been kidnapped by the space mafia which is known as the fridge and what they do is they kidnap people they put them in cryostasis and they keep them there until you pay up in whatever way they want you to pay and with Eva it's that she has to do deliveries for them or like go pick up things which is sounds simple in in theory, but is incredibly complicated and dangerous in actual fact. So Ava's like trying not to bring her crew down with her, but she feels like she has to do this thing and it's all very hashtag complicated. And she is such a great voice. Like she is so funny and snarky and like annoyed with all of these people who just like keep getting in her way and she just wants to do the thing. And why is everything annoying? She's also fallen for one of her crew, which is, you know, complicated from power dynamics. And I really appreciated the way that that was handled. Also, there's this like horrible alien king who has decided that she needs to be part of his harem and is pursuing her around the galaxy, causing huge amounts of damage and havoc, even though she told him no. Like, there's all kinds of things going on. And I think it is extremely adjacent to Deadly Education and Murderbot in that you will, it's a found family in a lot of ways. You will love these characters. You will love Eva, who is our narrator. And it's the first in the series. The second one is out. I loved the second one too. It just like gets better. So keep reading them. Again, that's Chilling Effect by Valerie Valdez. All right. I picked Velocity Weapon by Megan O'Keefe. This is like a military sci-fi mystery romp. (laughs) I'm just going to buzzwords, things, related items. (laughs) Um, So we get two perspectives here. They're like two main characters, Sonda and Biren, and they are sister and brother. Sonda is a pilot for her planet, which I think if I remember correctly, is called Ada. And... When the book opens, she has been rescued from a pod. She, like, wakes up in one of her ship's life support pods. Like, if your ship gets attacked or blown up in any way, the seats that the pilots sit in kind of close around them and then fill with, like, life preservation kind of fluid. And then you're just sort of preserved until someone can come pick you up. So she has come out of that pod onto an unfamiliar ship 
um, and is very confused about where she is. She's very weak. She's lost a leg. Um, and it takes her a minute to get oriented. And then through the course of her exploring, she figures out that she is on an enemy ship with no other people. She's the only person on this huge enemy ship. And the ship's name, the ship calls itself Biro. And the ship is super snarky. Like it has a whole personality and it's like moody. And I don't, maybe snarky is not the word. It's like an emo kid. Like your emo (laughs) ex-boyfriend from high school who like listened to a lot of AFI, you know, like that guy is this ship that she has awoken inside of with no other people. And it tells her that she, he found her like floating out in space and that, she has been floating in space for 200 years and that the the battle that she was injured in ended in her enemies deploying a planet killer, like destroying her planet and in the process accidentally destroying their own planet. So every person within this little um, galaxy that they're in is now gone. Her planet is gone. Everybody that she knows is dead and not just because of this battle, but also because it was 200 years ago. And so Biro, the ship, has also been alone for 200 years, and she's the first person that it, that it's spoken to for, you know, that whole time. And so she's got to figure out what to do. Like, okay, so how do I get to the next galaxy? How do I find people? Like, I need food. You know, she gets into problem-solving mode. I love this character because she is not, like, fancy or even super skilled. She was a run-of-the-mill grunt in the Air Force, you know? And she is, like, out to do the thing and figure out what's happening. The other point of view is her brother, Biren, who is a... who becomes a high-ranking government official when the book opens. And he witnesses the battle that his sister is is killed in or that is attacked in. And then he goes on a kind of diplomatic quest to get the body. Because he knows that there are pods out there and that she might be in one of them. And so he goes on a diplomatic quest through his job to try to get into enemy territory to retrieve these pods and save his sister. But you know going in that this is like these two things are 200 years apart. But not everything is as it seems. And Biro is not as funny or as nice as Murderbot, but has a lot of like, something is going on behind that face, you know, behind Mm. that robot. There's like, you're not in his head like you are in Murderbot, where you know that Murderbot is like ignoring when people talk to her or him and just like sitting there and watching soap operas all day. You don't really know what Biro is doing or what his plan is, but you know it's something. Like, there's something happening. So there's that mystery there. And, like, why are we being told two different timelines in such a fast-paced way? If they're 200 years apart, it's not like they're going to meet. Or are they? I don't know. (laughs) Who knows? You must read to discover. So that's Velocity Weapon by Megan E. O'Keefe. How have I not heard of this book? This is, like, extremely in my wheelhouse. It's so fun. I didn't hear anybody talking about it. Yeah. It came out in 2019. I got it. Huh. I got a galley of it. It was great. Well, note to self. <laughs> Library hold that business. Mm-hmm. All right. Our next question is from Emily, who says, I recently read Lost Roses and seriously loved A Gentleman in Moscow before that. I've also just marathoned The Last Czars on Netflix, and I haven't had my fill. Could you recommend some historical fiction set in 19th-slash-early 20th century Russia that will help me get my next Russian nobility fix? All right, so I picked for you The Winter Palace by Eva Stachniak, which is Catherine the Great, my favorite Russian. Do I have a favorite (laughs) Russian? I just said those words. You do. I think I do, though, and if I did, it would be Catherine, so there we go. 100%. Obviously amazing. 
And this is interesting because it is told from the perspective of a servant who is very close to the throne and is witnessing Catherine the Great's rise to power, which is like a trope that I love, right? Because, you know, as as is so often the case, the help, quote unquote, are treated as invisible. So they can go places, they can see things that like they're not, quote unquote, supposed to. Super interesting. So this servant, uh, in in English, it's Barbara. In Russian, it's Varvara. And she is in the employ of the Empress Elizabeth and is like, you know, witnessing all of the court shenanigans. And she becomes educated in espionage, etc. So she get, develops all these skills that are going to help us tell the story here. And then she watches when this young princess shows up and, you know, becomes Catherine the Great over the course of the book. So this is a series. This is the first in the series. Um, You know, super lush historical fiction. I think this will absolutely help you continue your current obsession, which I support. So Mm -hmm. again, that is The Winter Palace by Eva Stachniak. It's the first in the Catherine series. Um, Okay, I picked The House of Special Purpose by John Boyne. Uh, And this starts from the perspective of an 80-year-old man named Georgie, who is living in London. I think he's a librarian, if I remember right. And his wife, Zoya, they've been married for many a moon and have lived in London for 40 years. His wife is dying and she he is now reflecting on his past, how he came to meet her, how they ended up in London, where they've lived for decades, and what that means for like him being alone in London. The things that he's told all of his friends since moving there about his past for in Russia are complete garbage crap lies. <laughs> and so you are kind of like, well, then well, who are you? You know, so and then you're finding out. And it goes back and forth between present day 80 year old Georgie and Georgie is a kid because when he when he flashes back to his childhood he's like 17 i think when you get the first flashback he wor- he lives in a very small village in russia he's um i think a farmer and through a twist of like total accident or fate or whatever he steps in front of a bullet that is intended to kill one of the czar's i think uncles like relatives and so he saves a relative of the czar and to reward georgie he takes him to the Winter Palace to live with the Tsar and his family and to be a companion to Alexei, who was his son, who was the Tsar's son, and is supposed to inherit, you know, the throne. But as we all know, that is not what happened to Alexei. So he lives in the palace. Georgie lives in the palace, befriends this, befriends Alexei, who's in line to be Tsar, kind of develops a pretty big crush on Anastasia, and like is just thrust into this world of opulence and grandeur and nobility and fanciness, general fanciness. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, this is St. Petersburg right before the Russian Revolution. So it doesn't stay opulent and grand. And World War One is happening as you know, when it, the book opens. And so there's um, trouble a brewing. <laughs> and then the trouble comes and he has to, well, I'm not going to spoil it. You've, you've kind of follow him as he handles the secrets that he discovers in the palace handles the way that the royal family responds to the coming like revolution and storm and their eventual death. And then how he gets away and what takes him to London. It's it's very gentleman Moscow e like an elderly an elderly gentleman reflecting on his place in history kind of a thing. So that's the House of Special Purpose, which is the character's name for the Winter Palace, by John Boyne. Alrighty, our last question comes with a big trigger warning. We're going to be talking about suicide. So this question is from Sam. Sam says, this is a tough one since it deals with a sensitive topic. I'm looking for a book, fiction or nonfiction, YA or adult, that deals with how to cope when a friend or family member attempts suicide but does not succeed. 
I find that most books about suicide are dealing with the aftermath of someone's death, but what happens if they didn't die? No one ever seems to talk about that. A recommendation for this would be very, help- would be very helpful as this past year has been rough and I'd like someone else's perspective of coping with this kind of situation. Sorry, this is a bit of a downer, but important given the need for mental health awareness. I agree. So before we give you recommendations, I just want to say that if this is something that you're struggling with, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. We're going to leave a link in the show notes. And I'm just going to say the phone number now in case you have your phone with you and need it. It's 1-800-273-8255. Okay. This was a t- this was a tough question. And I think the closest that I got was Prozac Nation by Elizabeth Wurzel, which of course has a trigger warning for suicide attempts. So this is a memoir. Elizabeth Wurzel is a real lightning rod, y'all. Uh, she was a very controversial Gen X memoirist. I think she only wrote memoirs. Oh, and she wrote a book called Bitch, which is like a history of difficult women. And she, her first memoir, which is Prozac Nation, came out when she's in her 20s. And so she got a lot of flack for being like very navel gazy and self-absorbed and that like how much life could you have possibly lived before 30 and you feel so entitled to writing a memoir about it. I remember when this book came out. I remember all of that coverage about it. And it is whatever. However you feel about young people publishing memoirs, this is a memoir of her mental illness, like her journey with mental illness and addiction. And she very recently died, I think two years, a year or two ago of breast cancer, but struggled with her mental health her entire life. So for you know, starts in her childhood, which is pretty normal. Her parents get divorced when she's young and she's got some like trauma around that. She goes to school and like she's not there's not a lot of capital T trauma in her in her early childhood. She's just very mentally ill. Like she is diagnosed quite early with bipolar disorder. And you are just like with her as she goes to college and struggles like isn't in high school struggling, um, discovers drugs and alcohol struggles with that goes through cycles through a couple of different therapists attempts suicide a few times does not succeed, never succeeds, obviously. And I I picked this one because it, you know, I know that you were looking for the perspective of somebody who whose family member or like friend or close, you know, somebody close to them has attempted suicide and not succeeded. And the only one I could find was like a self-published memoir that had a very Christian-y lens. And I didn't think that that was necessarily what you wanted. I didn't trust it. So I didn't pick it. But this, she, she talks a lot about that perspective. Like she talks a lot about her parents and how her parents did or didn't support her in the aftermath of her suicide attempts and the things that her therapists did that were helpful or super unhelpful. So it's not, even though it is from the perspective of the person with the mental illness, it is not exclusionary of the effects that it has on everybody around her who loves her. So I think it will be helpful in that way. So that's Prozac Nation by Elizabeth Wurzel. Yeah, this is a tough one. And... I so I have a couple I have a couple things to, <laughs> to shout out here. The first is the very first thing that came to mind was actually a TV show. There's this Australian sitcom called Please Like Me that was created by and stars Josh Thomas, who like you might have seen his work, but I think it's really amazing, actually. And season two is very much about this question because Josh, who is like a grown up in this sitcom, you know, and it's it's a lot about like him coming out and like dealing with his life and, you know, trying to figure out what he wants to do with himself. Um, season two is him dealing with his mother's depression and suicide attempt. And there's an amazing episode seven discussion of it between the two of them that is just like, whoo, it's like, so, like, I just thinking about it, it's like really impactful and, and important. So I would recommend uh, that show to you as well. 
I, you know, I, I went back and forth on what to recommend on this. So I'm going to start out by saying we have a post on the site. It's a little bit older, but uh, it is novels featuring uh, mental health issues. Uh, and it was written for World Suicide Prevention Day by somebody who has struggled with suicidal depression, Susie. And so there are some great talk and discussion of books in this post. But I haven't read any of them. And so I wanted to give you something that I had read. And so my actual pick for you after all of that is Borderline by Michelle Baker. And this is actually an urban fantasy novel, which sounds like a weird thing. But the main character, Millie, this picks up a year after she does make a failed suicide attempt and becomes an amputee. And she's been recovering in this, you know, mental health center. And trying to figure out, like, how to pick up the pieces of her life. What does she, like, what does she want to do? Does she even know anybody that she can talk to anymore? Like, she's very isolated. It's really difficult recovery. She also has borderline personality disorder, which becomes part of the plot. Um, so there's a lot of mental health discussion in this book. And she gets approached by this woman who says from she's from something called the Arcadia Project. And if Millie will come and work for her doing like unexplained, possibly weird things, she will help her get her film career back. And Millie is obviously extremely skeptical and Mm -hmm. salty about this whole thing. But she's also like, well, what do I have to lose? So she gets sent on this like very wacky L.A. style mission that involves like the Fae and how they've been influencing Hollywood forever. And it's like it's a really bonkers kind of plot. Very enjoyable in in a lot of ways. But it's also deeply about how Millie interacts with her coworkers who have their own struggles and disabilities and mental health issues, how they interact with her. What are the rules that have been set up for her in this position? She's in shared housing. Like, so how people approach that. And like, there is a lot of things that are considerations because of her history of depression. And so like all of that stuff is part of this book. So uh, you're seeing it from her perspective, but it is very like gets into the nitty gritty of like, yeah, what happens after, which is what it sounds like you're looking for. And the author does share a diagnosis, has done interviews about uh, borderline personality disorder, and has otherwise seems to have done quite a lot of research around the topics that are not specific to the author's life. So, you know, that's my caveat for I don't know exactly the history of, Mm. of how this book came to be. But again, that's Borderline, which is the first book in the Arcadia Project by Michelle Baker. And that's our show. Just hands, she says again. <laughs> so thank you so much to our audio editor, Jen Zink. Thank you all for listening. You can find more book recommendations at bookriot.com, and you can find all of our other podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen. Please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It does make the show easier for people to find. Thank you to our sponsors. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. And where's Jen? I am on Twitter and Instagram as Jen IRL, J-E-N-N-I-R-L, or on Instagram as I am Jen IRL. Oh, and don't forget to send us your questions. Get booked at bookride.com. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye.